0: And we're in the dignity business. We want to preserve it and promote it. And I really find it heartbreaking when people don't see what they can do on themselves selves to discredit themselves. It's very disheartening. to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman.
1: Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast listeners, welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by Champion System Custom Cycling, Running, and Triathlon Apparel. Their website is champ-sys.com, C-H-A-M-P-S-Y-S.com. Why do I love Champion System and why is it the cycling and triathlon gear that I use? Well, for starters, the chamois and the shorts are amazing. I wore my Champion System bibs for the Dirty Kanza back in June. That's right, 206 miles and about 16 hours in the saddle and I didn't have a single issue. In addition, their gear is really, really awesome. It's lightweight, zippers are great, seams are great. As I mentioned, the chamois is great. I love their cycling gear, but also their triathlon and their running gear. And I've worked with them for several different custom kits that I've designed. Their art department is really, really easy to work with. And their production time frame is actually among the shortest in the industry. It's about four to six weeks from design submission until your goodies are on your doorstep. Not only that, but the folks behind Champion System are some of the people that have been with me since the beginning of my cycling career, and they are based in my home state of Nebraska. So you are in good hands if you do your business with Champion System. I can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at champ sis.com and tell them that Megan at Maximum Enthusiasm sent you. Hey listeners, today we don't around the bush at all, we get straight to the topic of what happens if you are in the unfortunate situation of being the plaintiff in a personal injury action, which means you've been hurt as a result of someone else's negligence, and you start posting on social media. Um, This can be a pretty uncomfortable topic to explore because most people think that You know, being on the receiving end of someone's negligence and receiving injuries or damages or losses is, is bad enough, but then to learn that you actually have to go dark on social media is sort of insult to injury. But my good friend and mentor Rich and I talk about the ways that social media is being used by the insurance companies and the insurance defense attorneys to really, really, you know, diminish, if not completely eliminate, recovery for very deserving plaintiffs. And we talk about the way that these things are showing up in trial. We also go beyond just the social media topic and we talk about the practice of law. And Rich and I have very common and, and very similar approaches to the practice of law in terms of the types of clients that we take, the way that we represent our clients, the way that we do our job, sort of with taking the high road in mind, always being you know top of mind and top priority and, and being authentic and being um, you know lawyers of integrity. And having our word mean something and also along those lines, choosing clients in cases where the clients have integrity and the claims have integrity. And, and then doing anything and everything we possibly can in, in, within our power to get those clients who are very deserving of a good recovery an outstanding result. So we just talk about a few of these topics and some of you may learn a thing or two about what it means to be in the lawyer's head and to hear some of the things that keep us up at night or wake us up in the middle of the night in my case. Um, I, I know that Rich is the same that I am in that we really truly invest 100% of ourselves in our cases and for our clients And I wouldn't want it any other way. And frankly, the way I see it, if the roles were reversed, that's the type of attorney and representation that I would want if I were injured or if one of my friends or family members were injured. So, you know, he and I are all in for sure. And um, there's no question that that does come with a price with respect to us personally as human beings. But I don't know that he and I could really practice law any other way. So here a little bit of our, our banter and our discussion, here from Rich who worked for the defense bar for years and years and years before he switched to representing plaintiffs. And I suspect you'll learn a thing or two here. And hopefully you never need a personal injury lawyer. Hopefully you never are involved in an incident that would warrant one. But if you are, or if a friend or family member ever does need one, hopefully you'll learn a thing or two here about staying off of social media setting appropriate expectations, and also what it means and looks like if you end up going to trial. So listeners, my guest today is my good friend, Rich Cowdy, an attorney here in Denver, and one of my role models and mentors and someone I aspire to be like, and someone that has taught me so much about the practice of law. So welcome to the show, Rich.
0: Good morning, and I really don't think I'm what you call a mentor, or role model, because you haven't seen me in a Speedo.
1: (laughs) So far, our
0: listeners,
1: you'll you'll learn real quick, Rich is incredibly self-deprecating, and he loves to make Speedo jokes also.
0: (laughs) Maybe a mental Speedo.
1: (laughs) So Rich is just a, a powerhouse of a lawyer in that he does it for all the right reasons, and he espouses many of the beliefs and principles that I do, which is that we (laughs) represent clients that we care about, and we do the right thing, and we take the high road, and sometimes we're up against opponents that don't play fair, but we show up each day nonetheless, and and one of Rich's um, great analogies is that, you know, firefighters don't complain when they get called into a smoking building, and similarly, we as plaintiffs' lawyers, we can't get too frustrated or down in the mouth when we are confronted with some of the the less pleasant aspects of lawyering. Would you say that's fair, Rich?
0: In many ways, it is. First of all, we never apologize for having high standards. We create high standards for ourselves, and we do not apologize for clients having to meet them. We know, like Caesar's wife, we have to be above reproach, and we take an authentic, earnest, sincere approach to representing people We recognize, as jurors do, nobody drowns in their own sweat, and we want clients to embrace that work ethic as well. And once we um, point out to the insurance industry, which is a highly and well-funded attack industry to discredit, diminish, and trash human beings for a profit, we have to avoid all attacks against our clients and their character. So if we have the high standards that we set for ourselves, and we ask the clients to meet those as well, then it's not a circular firing squad, but it's a unified approach.
1: Mm. I like that, I like that analogy, yeah. And you know, it's one of those things that no one teaches us in law school, right Rich, which is you learn how to do the cases to a certain extent in law school, but no one teaches you about managing clients and expectations and behavior and things that they do intentionally or unintentionally that actually can undermine their case. Um, and, and you and I go round and round about this sometimes where we work our tails off and we wake up in the middle of the night and we're stressing and we're s- blood, sweat and tears. And then suddenly we turn around and, and a client has done something that, um, has completely sabotaged their own case. And in fact, that's going to be the focus of today's podcast is this really emerging area of, of the danger zone in our client's cases, which is social media and,
0: Yep, we've seen the clients sabotage themselves and torpedo their own case despite it, and it's literally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to clients who wittingly or unwittingly through themselves or their families overpost information on things like social media that the insurance industry just grins at because they get secret and undetectable surveillance on our clients without us ever knowing about it.
1: Right. Well, and I want to back up just a second, because um, I've been practicing law really since social media was around. You know, Facebook was just coming to be a thing when I was um, in law school and graduating from law school. So my life has kind of always involved social media, and and my practice of law has as well, although it's become even more you know, a thing mainstream, but you practice law in a day when there was no social media. And so the question is, you know, you um, you've been practicing law in a time when social media was not as mainstream. And of course, now it's everywhere. And so talk to me about the differences that you're seeing as a trend across plaintiff's cases um, from a time when social media didn't exist until what you see today.
0: As you said, social media has evolved and it is the science that's with us now. And so clients and lawyers have to be ultra-cognizant of the weaknesses of using the social media. From my vantage point, in 37 years of doing this, 36 years of doing it, it seems that posting of any information on social media does not enhance the client's case. For example, in a civil case, if there is a claim for pain caused by someone else's carelessness, and a disruption of the ability to lead a normal life, any posting of someone grinning, having a wonderful time smiling, any kind of wonderful family events that you would normally expect now become subject to discovery to contradict the claims already asserted in the pleadings, which are all factually true. There's really no good purpose to be served by posting anything on a social media because it can always be misconstrued and warped and perverted as an attack against the person and their character subtly suggesting they are a liar, a cheat, and a fraud. Um, When I did 25 years of insurance defense work, I send out routinely requests for production of photographs, any photographs of the plaintiff taken since this event, event or trauma. And in that way, in the old days, I would use those photographs as fodder against the um, claimant or plaintiff, so I could discredit the claims. All they've done is fast forward that into the modern age, where they let the plaintiff sabotage their own cases. Like I said, I know one client who was offered $700,000, but his own self-posting of himself cracking a frosty corona on a Mexican beach led the jury to believe this man wasn't hurting in the slightest and gave a zero. Similar, another plaintiff was offered $400,000. Same routine. I've had other clients whose family members have posted social media that discredited the physical injury claim, which was valid, but nevertheless discredited the claims. Based upon experiences like that, I don't see much redeeming value for plaintiffs to post anything on social media. I'm sorry to be a dicky downer, but that's by my experience.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think you're a downer at all. This is the very purpose of this, today's podcast. And I wanna talk about a couple specific points that you raise, one of which is that the social media posts don't have to just be specifically with respect to the subject incident, whether it's a a bike crash or a car crash or something else. Um, As you mentioned, the example you used of the gentleman sipping a frosty Corona on a beach, he's living his life, he's potentially not even doing anything that's different from what his doctors have recommended, and he may just very well be taking a vacation that is just part of his life, sort of regardless of the injuries he has suffered. But the important point there is that that photo Conveys an entirely different message than the one that his lawyers were trying to present at trial. I'm not saying he was being dishonest or those lawyers were being dishonest, but as you said, it's very difficult to ask a jury for a claim of loss of enjoyment of life when you are very much enjoying life sitting on the beach, right?
0: It's very incongruent and juxtaposed with the claim of poor me, like it's a self pitying whiner who's yet enjoying a wonderful day at the beach or at the amusement park, or having a vacation in Europe, or doing any of a wonderful variety of things, is certainly incongruent, and it tells the jury that, well, maybe they were hurt, but not as much as they're wanting, and why should they get full value of what was taken from them? Because it shows not much was taken from them.
1: Right. Right. And so even just, quote, I'm just living my life, end quote, is detrimental when portrayed on social media. Um, Let's talk about your years working for the defense, which was on behalf of the insurance company. Um, Give me an example of how much money insurance companies would actually spend to put someone under surveillance who has filed a claim. Um, You know, how how far will they go to find um, photos of people doing things?
0: Well, it's nearly limitless because anybody that believes they're arrogant enough to take on a multi-billion dollar industry is um, short-sighted, to say the least, and arrogant. It's the worst. Um, for example, law firms have paralegals who do nothing except do um, Facebook surveillance on all claimants. Every day, every, the paralegal is assigned at the typical hourly rate company for special investigations unit, which are characterized as fraud units, where it's like the catnip for the cats within that unit. They tend to be former retired police officers or detectives out to pasture and decide they can use their investigative skills in trying to be a professional snoop. They can snoop on any judicial records, court records. There's an index bureau record from the industry to which every carrier subscribes, and plaintiffs are not permitted to know this, recording every insurance claim ever made by that claimant, and it comes up with a match. And so they have this background going into every single claim anyway and when lawyers get aggressive or insulting or if they even take on the industry itself the industry six its own SIU department on it it's like uh, an iceberg ninety percent of what you see is below the ground and a lot of this plaintiffs and claimants never know until it's brought out the big lumber later on during the pendency of the case after the claimant is locked into testimony on certain positions so The social media is one aspect of a multi-billion dollar forensic sleuthing designed, of course, to minimize the carrier's exposure and maximize the profits.
1: I've talked to a few of my clients who have said, oh Megan, they're not paying that much attention to me, just little old me. I'm just this little cyclist. You know, don't be silly. They're not actually following me around on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You know, I, I guarantee you no one's actually looking at my Facebook feed. And in light of what you've just described and the amount of money that insurance companies will actually spend to follow a person around in their life, what response would you give those clients?
0: They're myopic at best, delusional, and probably Pollyanna-ish. The industry is well known from studies by McKinsey and Company that the big profit centers are not denying the million-dollar claims, but denying the $100,000 claims. And so they focus their energies on the fifty dollars to $100,000 claim because there's more of them. So they focus their energy to make one or two examples out there as a signal to the plaintiff's industry and claimant's people that, yes, we're watching you. We're like Big Brother, and we don't want you to know when we're not. We don't want you to know that. We want your guard to be down. We will lay in the shadows and in the weeds and pounce later on. So only the unsuspecting, gullible, and naive will just believe that the people are not looking for them. People will say, geez, I saw that bubble van in my neighborhood. I don't want what's going on here. I've had people go out there and accost the surveillance people in their video cameras, take down license plates, call them in, and they have to be vigilant about it. I know some law insurance companies, like Allstate, do surveillance on the lawyers, and I've been a victim of that myself, much to the consternation of the sleuth, which found out, I'm the most boring human being from the law office, to the gym, to the home, to the law office, to the gym, to the home. Things like that. So, like lawyers, we have to be above reproach, mindful that not only are the clients under surveillance, but also are the clients, or also are the counsel. Todd Hinton in California, for example, was victimized by just that approach, as an example.
1: What happened there?
0: Naturally, Todd was taking on State Farm, and State Farm turned around and did major surveillance on Todd and tried to make him the focus, which turns out to disqualify Todd from representing his clients in that particular case. Todd's a highly, highly competent, highly successful, very accomplished counsel, but it means none of us are above the, uh, the bullseye for the insurance industry. And they should know every single injury case involves insurance or self-insurance. Everyone. It's not the insured who's necessarily targeting all this. It's the industry. And they make a, a particularly profitable approach in hiding behind their insureds, like the uh, the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. Ignore that. It's really not us pulling the levers when they are.
1: Right. And, um, you know, the other interesting issue, though, and you're talking about the implication of lawyers in this, the other way that social media implicates lawyers and the one that I'm so acutely sensitive to is the fact that once a client has created any kind of online social media post or, or online content of any kind, it, it cannot be taken down because then the destruction of that evidence is also evidence. And in fact, if a lawyer suggests or recommends to a client that they take a post down, it's considered spoliation of evidence, and lawyers are being disbarred for that conduct. And I am absolutely terrified by that, which is why I'm so over- the top with my instructions to clients that once you've created something, it must exist for all time.
0: Well, like the great philosopher John Wayne said, you know, life is hard and it's harder when you're stupid and what you're telling the clients is let's not be stupid out here. Let's be mindful and cautious about what we're doing. Is there a need to do this posting? Is this an ethical issue? It, well, could be for counsel. And I know under the fraud statutes like in Colorado, for example, lawyers, even in third-party context, that write this glowing letter demanding this money from the carriers and overstating the case, they might convert that into becoming a target themselves, so that if the claim is overstated or falsely represents what's in the records, then the carrier can turn around and accuse the lawyer as well as the claimant of fraud and reframe the issue precisely to be, well, who's lying here, the lawyer or the client? And that's not a wonderful place to be. State Farm has done that, for example. And I've had to step into cases and defend the attorney being accused of fraud. So it's kind of perilous uh, country out there unless you're really watchful and mindful of what you're doing and not doing.
1: Right. And, you know, the takeaway message is obviously just always be be truthful, um, you know, and that's clear and that's obvious Um, and, you know, evident. But that's the problem with social media is that someone can be being truthful and obvious and honest. And yet the fact that they are posting something that they believe is innocuous is going to cost them their entire case, not just zeros on the end of their case, it's gonna cost them an entire case.
0: Well, and they might end up paying for it. So it's like the law of holes. When you're in a hole, stop digging. And the industry is only too grateful to send you two and three shovels if you see an overeager client over posting and over sharing.
1: So what advice, well, let me ask you this question first. Um, because you've been practicing law since the time before social media was so pervasive, what do you think drives people to post these things, even knowing the dangers that we
0: explain to them? I'm afraid I don't have the competence to answer that. (laughs) I don't know why people feel this need to proclaim to the world. um, Look what I've been doing. Look where I am. If there could be one thing, it would be let's promote subtlety, and civility, I mean, is there a need to do this? And what need is being met by the posting of this exuberant information? Why does it need to be broadcast to the world at large? Even if you put it on a private setting, that can be, code can be broken. Judges will order discovery of that information if it's generally leading to discovery of admissible evidence and even identification of family and friends who may testify adversely to the interests of the, uh, of the claimant, of the person who's hurt through no fault of their own. I don't understand what would motivate that. I've had clients complain and grumble to me, but I need to get the word out. And the question is, well, well why? And that's what sits in the air now. Well, why?
1: Right. Yeah, I think there's a societal psychological component that, you know, you and I both don't have um, expertise in, but I do think it's very interesting and, and um, it's curious And I think you just raised a good point that I want to go back to, Rich, which is that just because you've marked your Facebook or Twitter Instagram feed private, 99% of the time, you are going to be ordered to produce those things in response to a discovery request from the other side. And I think that's really important for people to understand is anything online, you really have almost no expectation of privacy.
0: There's some case law that protects some of that. But by and large, there'll be a production requirement to provide that information. So there's really no need to be the broadcaster. You don't need to be almost in the position of a flamenco dancer of applauding your own rear end by saying, look what I have done. Is there a need to do this and what need is being fulfilled? And is there an alternative way of satisfying that need?
1: You know, in a recent example I had with a client, um, I was, we, we've talked about social media because it was actually the second time I've represented him and social media pretty much ruined his first case. So it was, you know, very fresh in both of our minds. He knew not to post anything with respect to the actual incident, but then I saw him posting other things just in his day-to-day life that I told him uh, one photo in, sp- in particular was going to be exhibit number one at trial, because if I were on the other side, that's exactly how I would introduce him to the jury in such a way as to completely disenfranchise him from the jury and alienate him from the jury. And he's like, well, I don't understand what the issue is with this particular post, because it has nothing to do with the incident. I'm like, no, you don't understand. You've just given them a way of showing you in a very unfavorable light.
0: And it's risky to post it. It's a risk-benefit analysis. What's the benefit? And there's a higher risk, then why do it?
1: And, well, and I think you and I both agree there's virtually no upside and there's almost a 100% downside to any post. Do you agree? Yes. Um, you mentioned the case with the corona on the beach. Are you aware of a few other cases or any, any specific examples where um, a social media post has cost someone, whether at trial or in settlement or, or anything like that?
0: Well, certainly there's a few of those. Um, one client where there's a video of her rolling down a hill yet claiming she has a back injury. Or another young man who claimed he had a back injury, yet he's got on his naked shoulders, you know, several young ladies on there with a big grin and tongue sticking out where they look like they're having a debauched time, which wouldn't go over well with some of the uh, the jurors. Or examples of um, the, the person claiming, oh, I can't walk. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed by the burns on my calves. Yet there's photographs of him doing yet another 18 holes down the golf course with, you got it, his legs all uh, shown by the shorts. And so there's examples where that's totally inconsistent with what the claims and allegations are for which money is being sought. And for some reason, juries get really touchy about money for pain, but they don't get at all touchy about, you know, money for medical bills and other expenses. Since they're so touchy about this, and since everybody seems to be on hyper alert, And trying to find reasons, character reasons, to disqualify payment, we've got to be an ultra-vigilant and hyper-alert as well not to have any client discredit themselves and self-sabotage their own claim.
1: Right. Well, and let's talk about the jury trend in general. I mean, I think a lot of our clients think when we walk into the courtroom, we're on equal playing field with defense counsel, these insurance defense lawyers, and just the insurance industry in general. But as of late here in Colorado, the statistics are, what, 70 or 80% defense verdicts?
0: Yeah, you hit on a good button because, because I've done you know, a lot of defense trials as defense counsel retained by carriers. And I've noticed over the years that the juror's sympathy goes right toward the defense because everyone sees themselves as a target they look at the plaintiff as if they're auditioning for yet another TV lawyer commercial or the big toothy grin in front of their Mercedes they tout getting hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing nothing except, you know, maybe a grimace or a wince, which is total fabrication, total masquerading, and a total misrepresentation of what's going on. The runaway verdict is nothing but a myth. If you can find two or three runaway jury verdicts even in our state in the last three years, I'd be astonished. Factually and statistically, in rear-end collisions, 68% of all verdicts, even of admitted liability, are flat-out zero verdicts, meaning the juries don't give a squat for the medical case or for the pain perceived by others. So when I do defense work, people say, gee, what's a sore neck worth? And I'd say, whose neck, yours or mine, because I don't feel a nickel's worth of sympathy for your neck. And so what they do is simply depersonalize everybody and make it all about the rampant greed of the claimant and their lawyer and why verdicts are way down. I mean, verdicts, for example, are routine for giving less than the medical bills and a zero for pain. People are scratching their heads, why can it be so low? Well, that's because in the 1980s, pre-tort reform, all states circulated bumper stickers that said, hit me, I need the money. And they kept on that national program, this is from the early 80s on, right when Ron Reagan, who said Medicare would lead to the loss of individual freedom, that's why he opposed Medicare from its infancy. Well, now we fast forward. Yeah, here's the gentleman, and they promoted that throughout the, the country in the early 80s, of course, leading to tort reform, which is nothing more than a subsidy for the careless and uh, larcenous. They get a subsidy for being careless, and the victim is the one penalized step by statute. But anyway... That's what it started off to be. And now we have statistically probably four out of five verdicts coming in either what the defense offered or less, even on admitted liability cases, because the defense perverts causation medically to being legal causation. And I'm sorry for the departure down the hair splitting on causation. Legal causation means but for this trauma, would you have had this issue and medical causation takes in everything from the evolution of the birth of the person, to their DNA, to their developmental stages, and anything else, because they all contribute somewhat. So medical causation is not the same as legal causation. And yet time and time again, the defense counsel and their medical hatchet people, who make millions of dollars prostituting their medical degrees to defeat a human being, always say, oh, well, it's a medical causation and they would have needed this anyway or it's unrelated. That's why we've been seeing time after time the defense bar prevailing even on admitted liability by reframing the case as about someone's rampant greed as opposed to what necessarily was brought about by someone else's utter carelessness and negligence.
1: And honestly, Rich, that's what I appreciate most about your time this morning. This was exactly the message I wanted us to explore and convey is that I think, speaking from my own personal experience, my clients have this notion that, well, my injuries are so obvious and the um, driver's uh, carelessness and negligence was so obvious, I don't understand why you won't just put me on the stand and I'll just talk about my injuries and how much my medical bills were, and then some of my friends and family can talk about my life and how it's impacted me, and then it's just going to be so obvious to the jury um, and for people who've never been in a jury, or have never been in a courtroom, or have never been in a trial, that is their belief. And of course, television shows, law and order, and s- similar things have, have colored their view of these things. But the, the reality the story that you're telling is, is far more dire. And it's why I need clients to understand that not only do we come in with the odds against us, but then you've given them this free gift of social media.
0: And let's not give them a gift. They already have too many presents under their Christmas tree as it is.
1: Right, right, right. I think that's another thing that clients fail to acknowledge, or at least maybe they know it intellectually, but emotionally don't process it. Which is that insurance companies have bottomless coffers and resources, endless resources. They don't care if they win or lose the trial. Um, the lawyer wants to win, of course, as a personal um, you know achievement, but. The insurance company can absorb the loss, whereas one of our clients who goes to trial and what they claim is an obvious case or obvious claims, if they lose, there's a chance that um, they not only get zero, but there's a chance that they may have to actually pay defense trial costs, right?
0: That's the, uh, the downside. The good news is we don't have the English system where the loser pays attorney's fees. We have the American system where the loser for now pays costs and you only get attorney's fees if it's permitted by statute or a contract. Still, the risk of loss is pretty heavy, and that's an influential factor in many cases and why most of them tend to resolve, as opposed to being proceed recklessly and uh, carelessly. So, um, like in anything, like the game of pool, you know, pick your shots carefully.
1: And as a lawyer, that comes down to um, you know not only case selection, but then also having these very real, candid conversations with clients going into trial and. Um, and trying to convey these messages. And in your and my experience, the cases that we've tried together, quite frankly, at the end of the day, it came down to a client being courageous enough to let us take it to trial. Um, And, of course, our, our advice and our suggestions were right there alongside them, saying we think that we can do a good job at trial. But at the end of the day, there are no guarantees at trial.
0: No, and you and I have enjoyed very significant successes because of the behavior of heroic jurors, which is where the real praise belongs and the heroic judges who let the jurors hear the truthful evidence and not be perverted and warped by this uh, sideshow brought by the defense on illegitimate subjects. So we've been able to keep our evidence pretty focused on what the issues are and the jurors heroically are focused on it as well for very um, decent outcomes for the clients because we've been mindful of what we're focusing on, and they've been truly authentic in presenting exactly what their issues are.
1: Which is a pretty powerful and amazing experience, having stood next to you as a few of those verdicts have come in, and that is is quite a feeling. Um, I mean, there's very few things I think in life that compare to that moment when your client receives that justice and that jury verdict. Um, is that? Is that what's kept you in this industry so long, Rich? Is, is that those victories?
0: Well, yes. It's very complicated, a lot more than that. I mean, I've had the punch in the gut from losing a case and wondering what did I do wrong? What could I have done different? Why was I so aggressive with this nice, watery eye defendant when he said it was all his fault? And then the next day came in and said, no, I've changed my mind only because my state farm lawyer said I have to change my mind. It's things like that that made me wonder, why do we keep persisting this? That's more of an ontological issue. I think every person, every lawyer needs to focus on what are the interior motivations. Why do we do what we do? I think it's a deeper sense of injustice, and we can't let this go on. If we don't stop it, who will?
1: And knowing you now for several years, I know that you are as anti-bully as anyone I've ever met. And so I suspect that that is a big part of what drives you.
0: I've been on the other side of that. I've been rejected. It's very painful. It's very hurtful. It cuts you to your core, to your soul. It doesn't feel good to be spurned and rejected, be the last one picked. To everybody roll their eyes, here you go again. Nobody likes being the butt of the joke. Nobody likes to be ridiculed and mocked. And I've been there. But we all are human beings and we all deserve decency and dignity. And we're in the dignity business. We want to preserve it and promote it. And I really find it heartbreaking when people don't see what they can do on their selves to discredit themselves. It's very disheartening. It's our job and my job to help promote people's sense of decency and dignity. And that's kind of what motivates me: is coming from a very poor background and watching my mother struggle, and watching a lot of interior, just a lot of personal pain. Let's try to avoid that if we at all, if we can do it at all costs.
1: There's a much much bigger picture here, isn't there? And um, you know, the, I'll just be honest, Rich. Like the image that just came to my mind as you were saying those things is. I wish that's what people knew about lawyers, and there's a big part of me that thinks that attorney advertising is, is, is harming us because I wish people could hear what you just said as, as why we do what we
0: do. We've got to be brutally honest with not only ourselves but our clients because three minutes after that verdict, if you have not been brutally honest, it will be a most painful three minutes. But if you've been brutally honest and you've done your very best, knowing you cannot control the outcome, all you can do is relax, be at peace with yourself. You've done what you can do.
1: Talk about a microcosm for life. (laughs) Uh, Well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess. Well, and that's one of the ways you've really helped ground me too, is that I do have, I think you and I both have a perfectionist streak in us, but you, um, you give me such great perspective and, you know, you do your best and then you have to just... Let it go. And we have it.
0: to let go. I mean, I wish I would catch a fish on every single cast, but I won't. But it's the matter of persisting and persisting until finally we'll get the right cast at the right drift at the right moment so we can catch the fish and then release it back to its natural environment.
1: You know, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit as we wrap up, Rich, because you bring fishing up and you and I've had this discussion numerous times about how attorneys manage their stress either well or they don't manage their stress very well. We talked about how do people do this who don't exercise? And, 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 and quite frankly, it's oftentimes that they turn to alcohol or some other um, self-medication strategy to um, momentarily press pause on the, the monkey mind or the spinning wheel inside their head and the stress um, and so you've been in the industry longer than I have. You know what, what suggestions or advice would you give perhaps to a new lawyer who's listening about how to manage this profession um, and the stress that comes with it?
0: Realize you're part of something greater than yourself. It's the EYE versus the capital I. It is not about you. It's about the process and what you're doing. And please take time to breathe and walk and be mindful of where you are at all times. I believe the oriental philosophy has a good approach to this. Focus on what you're doing as you're doing it at the time. There's a book by David K. Reynolds called Playing Ball on Running Water, similar to the Apollo 13 movie. Look at the crisis facing you at this particular moment, focus your energies on it, and then move on to the next one, breathing, deep breathing and focusing and being mindful on what you're doing. Don't get involved with the need to indulge on narcotics, on alcohol or something. Like we talked before, even Shakespeare 500 years ago said, why let a thief into your mouth to steal your brains? Enjoy what you're doing now. It's almost Don Juan, you know, Carlos Castaneda's approach. Let's focus on what we're doing at the time. Go to the next task one at a time don't let a million thoughts bombard your brain at the same time and become overstimulated and relax. Appreciate who you are and what you're doing because not everybody's going to do and have the courage to do what you are doing for others and for yourself. So uh, appreciate yourself and esteem yourself for what you're doing for having the sheer raw naked guts to put up with the crap that's being put against you. Like we've talked about. Um, we're firefighters. The last thing we can do is bitch about the smoke.
1: Right. Oh, Rich, you're a man of so much wisdom and grounding and just perspective for me. I, you know, you've know, you been in my life for 10 years. I'm just so thankful for your presence in my life. Um, I just can't say it enough. And I hope that other lawyers have someone like you in their lives that can really help them on those tough days because they happen. And it's really important to have someone kind of talk you off that ledge. Um, so as we wrap up this morning, the one thing i like to close with is really the Stephen Covey begin with the end in mind concept, which is when you look ahead to the end of your days and to your funeral or someone giving your eulogy, what, what legacy do you hope that you leave or what do you hope that they will remember you by?
0: That someone's burdens have been lightened somewhat by what I've been able to do to help them. And if you know something about this that I don't I sure like to know this, I wasn't thinking about my funeral for some time, but, you know, the old saying is I don't want to go screaming like everybody in my grandfather's car. I'd rather go peacefully in his sleep like he did, driving that car. But that's, you know, that's not a funny joke. But we look at legacies and everybody stands on everybody else's shoulders. We inherit this and pass it on. We all have many mentors and I have a bunch of them. So many, I'm not going to drop names here, but they're nationally accredited, highly brilliant people, and they've been most generous in sharing their knowledge and wisdom. All we can do is pass it on and move it on, and so collectively we can make each other's journey through our struggle a little less painful.
1: Well, you've certainly done that for me, Rich. So um, you've, you've left an indelible impact on my lives and on the clients' lives that I've served by virtue of your help And uh, I know that you've touched a lot of other people, too, and and certainly your clients that you've represented. So thank you for all that you do and who you are. And thanks for having this really meaningful conversation with me this morning. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thank you for those kind words. Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.